We are in a series that we're calling Rules for Life, The Way We Best Operate. It's a deconstruction of a best-selling book sold millions of copies called uh, 12 Rules for Life by a clinical psychologist named Jordan Peterson. Uh, it's made a lot of waves in the country, and we're kind of deconstructing a little bit. Each week, we're taking one of his rules, unpacking it, and see, okay, does this actually have biblical power attached to it? So this week, what we're looking at, actually, is rule number four. And rule number four it says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. In other words, it's a rule of comparison. Compare yourself not to, to others uh, today, but uh, compare yourself to who you were yesterday. And we're anchoring our teaching from 2 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 18. And here the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, Paul says, that's not wise. They are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions even beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory. But let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord actually commends. This is God's word. And we're going to divide the teaching like this. We're going to look at the problem of comparison that exists for every human in life. The Apostle Paul's take on comparison based on the text that we just read. And then the God who ultimately commends us in scripture. The problem of comparison, Paul's take on comparison, and the God who commends us. First of all, the problem of comparison. It you know, probably goes without saying, human beings are very complicated. One of the ways that we are complicated is the fact that we don't even really know exactly what we believe or why we believe it. So most of us can articulate what we think we believe, but there's this gap. There's like a gap based on you know, underlying fears and apprehensions and attitudes and desires and uh, superficial you know, surface level knowledge who we think we are and who we want to project to the world for religious, psychological, and social reasons, there's oftentimes an enormous gap between those two things. So it's very hard for even you to make a self-assessment on not just what you believe, but why you believe what you believe, and if in fact that is truly what you believe. Let me give you an example. It's it actually, if you really want to know what somebody believes, just asking them what they believe doesn't fully tell the, the tale. If you really want to know what some believe, someone believes, look at how they act. That's much more indicative. And I can give you, I can prove this with just one quick illustration. What do you count in life the most? Every one of us is counting stuff. Now we're counting different things, but counts, what, what do you count almost obsessively, almost religiously in your life? And for some of us, if you asked us our weight, we'd be able to tell you down to the 10th of a pound. And for some of us, if you asked us our GPA, we'd be able to tell you to a hundredth of a point. 
And for some of us, if you asked us how much money we have, we'd be able to tell you down to the dollars and cents in every bank account. And for some of us, if you'd asked us our age, we would not tell you our age because even though we know it, that number is so controlling and so powerful in our life. It doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. For some people, they so over-identify with that number that they can barely tell it to anybody else. This works on pastors too, by the way. I don't know a single pastor, I've never met a single pastor that doesn't know the attendance in his church within 10 to 20 people on a given weekend. You know, it's also interesting, you know, during COVID, obviously larger group gatherings have shrunken enormously. And I just saw a report that said that three out of 10 pastors that had never actually considered leaving ministry before during COVID have now strongly considered leaving ministry. You know why? their whole identity is getting shaken because that number is shrinking and shrinking and is not bouncing back and might never actually bounce back. So, you know, it's not just, the question, somebody might say, okay, are you saying it's wrong to count stuff? No, it's not wrong to count stuff. It's actually probably responsible to. You know, a shepherd should probably know how many people he has in his flock. And a really good student probably knows approximately what their GPA is. That's probably part of being responsible in life. The question is, what do you count and why do you count that thing? And why do you count that thing so obsessively? You see, because we're all counting different stuff. A CEO might have no clue what exactly their weight is. And a good student might not care that much what their age is. And a really great athlete might not care what kind of grades or remember what kind of grades they got back in high school. But other people do. See, we're all counting different stuff. Why are, here's the application question already. What do you obsessively count and why? Is it likes and clicks and views? Is it friends or kids or grandkids? Is it financial assets? Why do you count what you count? And I'll tell you what, you've heard me say this before, but that is the strongest indicator. Whatever you obsessively count is the strongest indicator of what has the most potential idolatrous power in your life. The thing other than Jesus that you think potentially defines you. Nobody's ever said this better than C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. I reread his chapter on pride this past week and there's a spot where he says this. Look, he says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, counting something. It only gets pleasure out of having more of it than the next person. It's the comparison that makes you proud. It's the pleasure of having your count be greater than the rest. And Jordan Peterson would completely agree with that. In rule four tonight, rule four again is compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. And actually, Lewis would add to that, sociologically, it's much harder to be comparatively good today than it was like 50, 75, 1,000 years, uh, uh, 75 or 100 years ago. And you know why? Because so many more people live, for starters, in cities than they did 75, 100 years ago. Um, 50, 75 years ago, to be, to be the homecoming queen or spelling bee champ or star basketball player in a town of 3,000 people, it's like, great, impressive, but not really because it's such a small pool, right? Uh, imagine if you live in New York City or imagine if you live in LA and let's say you're one in a million. Can you imagine what it would be like to be one in a million of something? How extraordinary would that be? One in a million. Well, if you live in New York or LA, that means there's 20 other people exactly like you. So big deal. What difference does that make? And furthermore, in the 21st century, digitally speaking, you are connected to 7 billion people. 
And therefore, like the hierarchy of accomplishment is dizzyingly vertical. And it's like, okay, so let's say you can become prime minister of Canada. That simply means that you are not competent enough to become president of the United States, huh? It's all, see, it's all comparison. Peterson would say, in the 21st century, if you are trying to feel good about yourself based on comparative performance, it's nearly impossible if you're paying attention at all. And what I'd add to that is, it's like almost as if God didn't create us to compare ourselves to one another, huh? So Peterson's take, his take is that comparison with others is statistically foolish and it's uh, terribly existentially depressing. So instead of comparing yourself with other people, what you really should be doing is comparing yourself now with a former version of yourself, right? Not looking for perfection, but just looking to make progress in life. And yes, that does come from assigning some kind of value. So you have to choose, consciously choose something in your life that you want to uh, perceive as valuable. Uh, you have to make necessary steps in order to procure it and attain it. And you have to question, you know, am I willing to make the sacrifices to continue advancing in that particular field? In other words, you know, as a, as a psychologist, Peterson essentially would say to somebody who's somewhat miserable in life and in comparison, ask yourself these three questions. Number one, what is bothering me? Number two, is it something that I can even fix? If I can't fix it and can't control it, I should probably let it go. Is it something that I can fix? And number three, if I can fix it, would I actually be willing to fix it? Am I willing to make the sacrifices necessary to improve in that given area? And he actually gives a really helpful illustration. He says, imagine your life, which often feels overwhelming and chaotic, like a desk at home that has a bunch of scattered papers on it. And we've all had that thing where it's like, you know, you just feel overwhelmed looking at all the stuff that you have to do and those papers represent responsibility. They are like bills that you have to pay and to-do lists that you have to get done and relational commitments like RSVPs and, and all sorts of stuff. And it feels overwhelming. But the problem in life is if you just run away from the desk, that doesn't get rid of the problems. That doesn't make the bills go away, right? A lot of people try to do that and, you know, block it out. That only makes problems worse. What you need to do is you actually have to order up the desk. Now, how do you do that? You take the papers that are there, you shuffle them, you put them together. And actually, perception-wise, what happens is the problem literally starts to look smaller because they're all in order now, right? It perceptively seems smaller. By staring at the stack, it seems less intimidating. And then when you realize that that stack of papers is not just one giant chunk that you have to swallow whole, but it's actually made of constituent parts that you can tackle one bite at a time. So do it, take one sheet, do it one sheet at a time and then reward yourself appropriately when you do that. And guess what? Your life will become ordered and you will start to gain control and confidence and courage moving forward. And uh, it, it works. It won't make you better than this idealized collective, you know, uh, ideal of, of humanity. It'll make you better than the former version of yourself though. And that's really important. When you can gain satisfaction that comes on the journey of self-improvement, that's one of the purest forms of satisfaction and joy that exists in life. You see, most of us have, most humans have some kind of fantasy where they're like, well, if I could just win the lottery, then I'd be happy. Because if I win the lottery, I can retire, it makes all my work problems go away, and I'll go and I'll just sit on a beach and I'll, you know, I'll drink in my hand and I'll live out my days and I'll always be happy. And Peterson would say, no, you won't be happy. You'll be happy for three days. 
after three days, you'll be bored, sunburnt, and drunk, right? That won't perpetuate happiness. Rather, if you can discover the satisfaction of self-progress, that'll be a much purer version of happiness, right? It's not bad advice, not bad advice, but like we do each week, we say, okay, here's what he's saying. But the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about comparison and self-perception as well. And in our text, let's take a look. The trickiest aspect of this text is contextually, there is a group that exists in the church in Corinth that are called the super apostles. I know it sounds crazy, but that's the term that's used in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 5. It's a term, most extraordinary apostles or super apostles. It's kind of a pejorative term that Paul uses, but it's a group of individuals in the church in Corinth that have essentially poached Paul's work. They came in and they suggested to the congregation that they're more qualified to run this congregation than Paul is. And Paul doesn't state what exactly the uh, like superior standards that the super apostles have, but we can, we can figure it out kind of from the context. So what he says is there's basically four things here. Uh, number one, they seem to be highly trained speakers. Okay, so in the ancient Greco-Roman world, if you were skilled in the public art of rhetoric, you were very influential, very, uh, you know, mover and shaker in society. Number two, they could charge a great deal of money for their services. And it's like the same thing today. Uh, if the, the, the more popular you are of a speaker, the more you can charge to be the speaker at a commencement address or something like that, okay? So it proves you're important, it proves you're influential. Number three, they have some kind of impeccable Jewish ancestry. And number four, they have letters of recommendation from, for lack of a better term, celebrity Jewish teachers. You know, you have, uh, this is like when people, you know, write a, a, an affirmation on the back of your book or getting a diploma from an Ivy League school. It, it suggests disproportionately that you are competent to do a certain type of job. The super apostles have all that. In contrast to the apostle Paul, who in Corinthians, he says by his own admission, he's not that great of a public speaker. He says that uh, he considered it an honor to work for free. He never charged the Corinthians anything. Uh, he said that, you know, he's technically, even though he's of Jewish descent, he's technically born outside of Palestine. And four, he's a former persecutor of Christians. So he's not getting any letters of recommendation from any Jewish rabbis or any Christian teachers by this point. He's only getting recommended by God. And so these super apostles, essentially, to understand who they are, one of the major themes of the New Testament is a group of people that we run into again and again in a number of Paul's writings that are called the Judaizers. The Judaizers are people who are uh, Jewish but converted to Christianity, but nonetheless continued to assert that people must obey the Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be truly godly, in order to be truly saved. These are the self-righteous legalists who had made non-biblical, man-made external standards by which they determined whether or not somebody was truly godly, okay? These were the people in modern terms, these are the people who outlaw jeans in church. These are the people who have, for whatever reason, why can you not wear something in a church service, that kind of thing. Uh, nobody really, not too many churches do that anymore, but you remember, some of you are old enough to remember, this is a thing. Why do you have to have a dress code like that? Well, it's not in the Bible. It's just a man-made imposed dress code. And human nature rightfully rebels against man-made non-biblical rules like that. So the, the Judaizers, it, the rationale of self-righteousness, by the way, it always works this way. When you set up your own simplistic 
external rules that you think people have to abide by in order to be truly godly, it does two things. One, when you keep those rules, you pat yourself on the back because you're satisfied with all that you've done and your simplistic rules. Number two, when other people fail to keep your man-made rules, it gives you an an entitled uh, mindset of judgment towards them. These super apostles are completely like this. They're completely self-righteous. And um, not only that, they're obsessed with external standards. Now, here's the thing with externals. Whether they're valid or not, they don't always tell you a whole lot. So to some extent, the irony is not lost on me that these guys are identified as super apostles. And in the modern church, we don't have a word like super apostle. Interestingly, though, we do have terms like super churches or mega churches. And I say that not, I don't have no intentions of throwing under the bus any uh, mega churches that exist out there. There are a number of them that I think are uh, really fairly accurately proclaiming Orthodox Christian truths. However, there's also many out there that I would say are spiritual disasters that are not good for individuals and are not good for the name of Christ in American Christianity. And here's my point in bringing it up. On the basis of the externals, you cannot tell if they're helpful or not. Because Jesus never said, by their outward success, you will know them. He says, by their faith, by their fruit, by their love, by those things you will know them. Not by their success, you will know them. But by their faithfulness, their fruit, and their love, you will know them. And the Corinthians, they were, you know, I don't know, some of you were here two summers ago when we went through Corinthians. We said more than perhaps any of other Paul's churches, the Corinthians easily got swept up in worldly stuff. And so it's not surprising that they were easy prey for the super apostles who were big on external standards. Now, how does this differ from Paul's operation in his ministry? Uh, Paul, much like Jesus himself, expressed tremendous patience with people who were struggling with temptation and struggling with sin and immorality. On the other hand, the claws come out with Paul when he gets around self-righteous, legalistic, moralistic people who presume to be church leaders who actually aren't pointing people more towards the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but are pointing people farther away, pushing people farther away from the grace of Jesus Christ. The super apostles absolutely fell into that group. They disrupted his work. He says, I would have been able to accomplish a lot more if these guys had not, had not been spending so much time working on these guys. Number two, they poached his work. They didn't start the church in Corinth. They just came in and it was like a hostile takeover. And number three, the thing that bothered him the most, they boasted in themselves when he knows that any true believer only truly boasts in the Lord. So in his own defense, and for the glory of Christ, Paul rightly condemns the foolishness of those supposed teachers, super apostles. Now, for our purposes today, when we're thinking about comparison, this text is important, but it's also important one other section in Corinthians where the Apostle Paul, it's maybe his best statement on comparison in, in all the New Testament. And I want to take you to that right now. It's in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, This then is how you ought to regard me and us in our ministry, as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. And now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Look at what he says here. Memorize this. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any other human being. I don't even judge myself. Look at what he says next. My conscience is clear, but that actually doesn't make me innocent. 
This is the difference between subjective reality and objective reality. A lot of people feel relatively decent about themselves. That doesn't make you pure before God. How you feel about yourself. What does God, the God of the universe, feel about you? He says, what difference does it make what I think of me? What difference does it make what you think of me? At the end of the day, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. What is, what's Paul saying here? It doesn't matter what you think of me. For that matter, it doesn't matter all that much what I think of me. I don't compare my ministry to the ministry of the super apostles in order to find my value. I don't need your approval in order to find my value. I don't even need my approval in order to find my value. I need the approval of the one opinion that matters at the end of the day. That's the opinion of God. And for the sake of Jesus Christ, when God looks at me through the lens of Christ's cross and the lens of Jesus' blood, and he holds me against the perfect standards of righteousness, you know what he sees? Perfection. That's all that matters. I don't care if you like me or not. I don't care if I like me all that time, much or not. I often don't always, but that doesn't destroy me because God loves me and God likes me and God affirms me and I move forward out of that. And so what you need to then do is stop making comparisons with other people in order to find your value in this world. It makes you feel worse it makes you a worse person, that type of comparison evaporates grace in your heart. It dehumanizes you. It makes you miserable. It makes you mean. It makes you insecure. Now, unfortunately, look, the the gospel does not predominate in society, and yet society is still looking for affirmation and validation and security. And so what is society supposed to do? The only thing that society knows to do then regarding human value is to compare ourselves with others. We do that constantly and it makes us hate others and it makes us hate ourselves. And I'll tell you what, 21st century is just like super ripe for this because social media didn't invent the problem of comparing ourselves with others, but holy smokes, it is steroids for comparing ourselves with others. Um, Aid and I were just on vacation. We haven't taken a whole lot of pictures when we go on vacation. Like, I was like, at some point in time, we need to start documenting some of this so when I get old and lose, lose all my memories, I need to remember what we did at some point. So I'm like, she's like, why are you taking so many pictures? I'm like, I need this. Like, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna need this eventually. So I'm taking shots of everything. And at some, like way too much. And at some point, I leaned over to her and said, do you remember like 15 years ago when they had those little cardboard boxes called disposable cameras? You remember those things? like 15 bucks or 10 bucks a piece and you get 20 pictures and like it's a, it's a huge Kodak racket and you got to take them to Wal- uh, Walgreens and pay another 10 bucks to get them processed and developed and so it's like a dollar a shot. So like you better do one, two, three cheese to get that picture right because you're not just screwing up. That's cost me a buck every time. People don't take a picture today. People take pictures today and then you delete nine of them. You take the one that you want, you run it through 50 filters, you erase all the blemishes, you augment the reality, you post the illusion online so that everybody can see how epic your life is. So if you are going to compare yourself to somebody else's illusion of a life, you will be miserable. If that's a temptation for you, take whatever steps you need to take to stop doing that. And by the way, in your growth groups this week, those of you who are in growth groups, 
I'm gonna ask you to do exactly this. Whether you're online or not, whether you're on social media or not, it doesn't make a difference. Every single one of you in this room right now is comparing yourself to another human being in some way that's relatively unhealthy. Here's what I want you to do. You have to identify that in front of other people. You have to verbalize that. It gives you power over it. Next thing that you need to do is you may need to make actionable steps as to how you're going to not make decisions to improve the comparison, the point of comparison, because that's what you're already doing. You need to make steps as far as how you're going to stop comparing that area of your life. And then the third thing that you do is you ask for the presence of Jesus Christ in your life that he would remind you how valuable and how righteous you are as you stand before your God because of his grace. If you do those three things, I guarantee your wellness will be better. If you do those things, I guarantee you will be able to be a content and accept yourself in Christ. Now, let me get to the final point here the God who commends us. So remember what Jordan Peterson's advice was? He said, you shouldn't compare yourself to others because it's unrealistic and unproductive. Rather, you should concentrate on what you can do to improve yourself. If it's not something that you can actually do, you need to just let it go and accept it. If you can improve it, then you need to determine what the steps are, what the appropriate sacrifices are to improve that aspect of your life. And then when you take those steps, you have to reward yourself accordingly. You know what that is? That is classic cognitive behavioral therapy. It works. It works really well. It's not bad advice. But here's my issue. What if I compare myself now to a former version of myself and I still despise myself? Like, because that can happen for a lot of different reasons. Either I haven't made nearly as much progress as I think I should have made. Every time I've hit uh, a round number in my age, I realize all the things that I didn't accomplish that I said I was going to accomplish by that age. So what if I haven't progressed nearly as much as I thought I should have? What if I've barely progressed at all? What if in some areas of my life I've regressed? And furthermore, what if I'm actually progressing but I'm still haunted by the past mistakes that I've made. See, the problem of progress in a world that lacks God consciousness is not that progress is impossible because it's not. The problem is that it doesn't eliminate my past transgressions. And furthermore, most advice on progress forces me to have heightened self-consciousness. What happens if everybody in the world is only focused on themselves? What happens if everybody in the world is only working on themselves? So far as I can tell, that's where the main problems of life actually come from. War and hatred and abuse and oppression come from everybody in the world saying, no, me first. Me first. Focusing on themselves and then feeling inferior or superior and acting accordingly. I don't think it works. I think actually a much better solution is if we could somehow convince human beings to, yes, steward ourselves, but to only find our value in something that comes outside of ourselves, like to only boast in the Lord. I go back to C.S. Lewis's chapter in Mere Christianity on Pride, and he says this, essentially, if the problem with the world is pride, self-focus, and the solution to the problem is this thing called humility. And he puts it like this. A really humble person, a really humble person will not be thinking about them. See, if they're working on their own humility, they're still focused on themselves. A really humble person is not working on their own humility. 
He's not thinking about himself at all. And the way other commentators have put it, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. How do you do that? How do you get to the point where my life does not revolve around me? How do I get to the point where I'm not the focus of all of my attention? I'll tell you what, it only comes when you focus on the one who did exactly that for you. It only comes when you find security in the one who empties himself of himself to take care of yourself. The Apostle Paul, let's go back to Philippians 2, what we read our first lesson earlier. Do you remember what he said? He said that every believer should have the mindset of Christ. And what was the mindset of Christ? He is in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And immediately after this, the Apostle Paul writes what? He says, and because of this, therefore, because Jesus did this, God exalted him to the highest place. Do you see what the movement is? Jesus empties himself of himself. He humbles himself. He serves others. And when he did that, God said, I will exalt you. Now, you and I aren't Jesus, you know, obvious. But we are redeemed by the grace of Jesus. And we're not just redeemed by the grace of Jesus freely into nothing. What are we redeemed to? We're redeemed by Jesus into the image of Jesus. Jesus sent the spirit into our lives, his own spirit, not for nothing, but to empower us into the image of Jesus. And therefore, our aim in life naturally would be to make the same movement of Jesus. What's the movement of Jesus? To be so affirmed in the affirmation of the Father to empty yourself out for one another. See, you remember what we said a couple weeks ago, some of you who are here? Don't, don't chase your own dreams. You're not wired to chase your own dreams. God wired you to chase his dreams. Pursue that and let God exalt you. The way to true glory is to empty yourself of all pride. Comparing ourselves to others or even comparing yourself to the former version of yourself, that is a proud pursuit. It's an attempt to build yourself up and make a name for yourself. You notice Jesus never does any of that. Do you ever see him in the gospel saying like, yeah, I just need to work on, never mind you, I'm going to work on me for a little bit now. Does that sound like something Jesus does? Like, no. He finds rest in his father's affirmation. He finds security in his father's love. And then he empties himself for others. And the world gets saved and you and I get saved. And now you're a redeemed, righteous child of God. So the question is, all right, well, what are you doing here? You're making the same Jesus movement. What would happen? What would happen if you were so secure in the Father's affirmation that your whole life was just, how do I empty myself out for the sake of others? I don't know what happens. and I don't know what that would look like. I think if you had a thousand people doing that together, it would look pretty extraordinary. So let's ask God to help us see what that looks like. Lord Jesus, my obsessive awareness of myself my worldly counting and comparing, it makes me miserable. It makes us all miserable. 
you lovingly emptied yourself to clean all of that selfishness up. Thank you. Let us now live experiencing your gift of righteousness and emptying ourselves to serve others to glorify your name. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.